The Restoration and Empowerment for Social Transition Center is a Peel Region nonprofit organization serving BIPOC youth who are either experiencing or are at risk of experiencing homelessness, supporting them to change their story, discover new possibilities, and shelter dignity. This podcast, Homelessness and Hiding, Our Youth Between the Cracks, is an uncensored discussion of content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Personal discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Homelessness and Hiding, Our Youth Between the Cracks, a podcast discussing youth homelessness in our communities while elevating the voices of those with lived experience and the people on the front lines fighting against it. In this episode, we discuss the unique experiences of youth identifying as part of the LGBTQ2S plus community with stigmatization, discrimination, and homelessness. I'm Maya Moniz, your host for this episode, and today I sit with Nick Beckett, a youth worker at Covenant House in Toronto, but he joins me here today as a non-affiliated, independent advocate for youth homelessness and the LGBTQ2S youth community to speak about the intricate nature of this issue. Hello, Nick. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Maya. You're welcome. And in case you didn't catch it, I did in fact say welcome back as we've actually had Nick on the podcast once before. I personally never got the chance to speak with you. But if you want to listen to him tell his story with youth homelessness, check out Homelessness in Hiding episode two, Experiencing Homelessness. But today, Nick is joining me to talk about something a little bit different. So that said, can you please introduce yourself and your connection to the topic of youth homelessness and LGBTQ2S plus youth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, like I said, thank you so much for having me on the program. It's it's always a joy to talk about youth homelessness. It's uh, it's an issue, as you know, it's really strong to my heart, and uh, it's um it's something that I believe so much in. Anyway, so yeah, thank you, Maya, for having me. My name is uh, as you so uh, nicely introduced. My name is Nick. I'm a full time youth worker at Covenant House. Uh, I also work for Fred Victor Center Toronto. My roots to the LGBTQS community run deep. Um, It is a community that I align with on many levels, especially uh, with regards to its quest for equality, social justice, and equity. It's a community that I really advocate for. And uh, a lot of my clients are from this community. And to speak about the, the issues that's facing them and to try to come up with some solutions is something that I'm really passionate about. So thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. Before we get started formally, I wanted to ask you, what are you hoping to get out of our discussion today? Um, I'm hoping to just raise awareness, most importantly, about some of the issues that homeless youth are facing who are from the LGBTQS community and to educate uh, our listeners just some, uh, some practical ways that we can address these issues and how we can reduce some of the stats that this community is currently facing, which, which are pretty considerate, which we will dive into. And um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, to get us started, I wanted to talk about a youth struggle in their native home. So this might be discussing perhaps before a youth experiences homelessness. So maybe the avenues they go down to experience homelessness because of their gender identity or, you know, the fact that they identify as LGBTQ2S+. But before doing that, I think we need to talk a little more generally about stigmatization and discrimination and kind of discussing the differences between those two things. So my first question for you is, what is the difference between discrimination and stigmatization? How do both of these phenomena relate to youth homelessness, either independent of each other or in tandem? 
Yeah, that's such a good question. And more oftentimes than not, I think we conflate the two. So let's try to get some clarity around them. So the first one, uh, discrimination, actually, let's go with stigmatization first. It's probably a little easier to find. LGBTQS youth, especially those who are experiencing homelessness, as we know, they are plagued by stigma as well as discrimination. And, And stigma, to simply put it, is a negative stereotype. The stigma is reality shaping, and it is uh, something that gets to the core of a person's identity, uh, especially individuals who are in the LGBTQS community. I don't want to give any examples because I don't want to glorify it, but I'm sure we can think of um, some negative identifiers that people have attached to this community, labels, as well as um, some hurtful assumptions and judgments Stigmas are a determinant for a whole host of, of issues, psychological, physical, um, and by those I mean health-related issues. It's one of the greatest barriers um, for an individual to live a complete and a satisfying life. The way stigma differs from discrimination is, uh, in my view, discrimination is simply an unfair treatment or a prejudice uh, due to a person's identity. This obviously includes LGBTQS identifiers, but it also includes race, ancestry, color, ethnic origin, citizenship, ability, gender, age, and marital status. It could even include mental health disorders, uh, physical disabilities. It's any one of these variables, or even the ones I didn't mention, followed by uh, some kind of differential treatment. These two go in tandem more times than not, and the effects are quite profound. Uh, I think the most obvious one we would have to start with would be mental illness. You know, when when individuals are faced with stereotypes and stigmas, this almost always results in multiple intersecting layers. This could have a profound effect on one's ability to live a meaningful and wholesome life. It also raises a bunch of barriers uh, in terms of opportunities related to housing, uh, to employment, to status, to um, uh, enjoying full and fruitful relationships, both uh, in terms of the intimate level and uh, on the community level as well. Thank you. I think that was actually a very good breakdown of both discrimination and stigmatization. I also actually want to thank you for kind of making the call about not listing any stereotypes or any sort of examples, because that wasn't something I had initially considered. But you saying by bringing them up in passing, we're glorifying the issue and we're perpetuating the issue. I think that's something that I should always consider and that everyone should always consider. Thanks. Another question I have as well, speaking generally about discrimination and stigmatization, is how one's intersectionality can complicate these issues. So intersectionality here refers to one's key contributing elements of one's identity. So that's one's race, age, gender, socioeconomic status, religion, ethnocultural identity, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to know how one's intersectionality contributes to the discrimination and the stigmatization they might face? Yeah, this is a really good question. To help us understand it, we need to acknowledge that there is a dominant norm in Canadian society, one that can be identified as heteronormative, that is Eurocentric, that is predominantly white, 
and one that puts a high premium on traditional values associated with marriage, with the family unit, et cetera, et cetera. So intersectionality would just be an aspect of someone's identity or aspects that are simply layered against and in contrast to the dominant group. So for example, um, let's think of how about a racialized LGBTQS female youth compared to a white bisexual male youth. Both are in a sense discriminated against and are stigmatized and face multiple barriers. However, because of the race element and because of the gender element, because they intersect, there's higher likelihoods for more negative and enduring outcomes uh, for that individual. The more times your identity intersects on the basis of gender, race, ability, age, etc., the more likely you are to face more challenges in life and the more like you are to experience um, differential treatment. And uh, this is a newer lens, I'd like to call it, um, but it's one that's quickly gaining momentum. And it's one that is that you can just walk around every day and just and just see in plain view. The more things you have working against you, in a sense, the more likely you are to to suffer the consequences. And that's the sad reality that we live in. Mm. Honestly, yeah, I think I think that puts it in perspective rather well. The example you gave is really effective at kind of painting that image. Like for me personally, I identify as heterosexual. So then I understand in a lot of ways, I am not going to experience, you know, discrimination or stigmatization because in that aspect of my identity, I am in fact the majority, you know, I'm the dominant, if you will. But then as a black woman, those are two parts of my identity that are significant minorities and do experience a lot of destigmatization, sorry, <laughs> discrimination and stigmatization. <laughs> I wish they were destigmatized. <laughs> You're absolutely white, right. I was going to say white. You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Which, which goes back to the example of the white male bisexual youth. I mean, there is um, on the surface... Uh, a premium and a privilege society affords to folks who look a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that same premium can also be, in a sense, a liability. And unfortunately, and I hate speaking in such frank terms, but, you know, if you are a, a black woman who identifies as queer in comparison to the white male who identifies as bisexual, you know, the literature shows overwhelming favor for the white male who is bisexual than their black mm -hmm. counterpart. Uh, and, and this in terms of long-term uh, outcomes in life, in terms of social mobility, I think that would be the biggest one. So how far up you can climb the ladder. The more intersectionality one has, the more likely that they're going to plateau at a much higher rate and at a younger age. And we have the studies that show this in um, not only the Canadian context, but the American, Australian, and English context. And I think just putting a name to the term is super helpful if we're going to have large-scale societal change. We, we've named the problem, 
And now universities and colleges and scholars are scrambling to find ways that we can reverse these negative outcomes for individuals who with intersectionality or intersecting identities. Mm. I like that, though, what you just said about, you know, we've named it and now we have the term from which to spark change. So hopefully part of what we can do today in this discussion is also highlight the other sort of issues that LGBTQ2S plus youth experience. So, you know, moving along to that specifically, I want to get into a little bit of statistics and then I want to talk about them. So the first one I have is from the TransPulse study in 2010. They investigated the health needs of trans people across Ontario, and they found that 77% seriously considered suicide and 45% had attempted. So my question for you regarding this is, how have you seen discrimination and stigmatization against LGBTQ2S plus identifying youth impact their mental health? Yeah, this is a really good and important question. Um, You know, when I was doing my research for this question, I actually saw a higher figure and that was 82%. Uh, who have considered suicide, which is absolutely staggering and is obviously of huge concern. As somebody who works in the field, I'm keenly aware of these statistics and so are those who shape policy. And I think one of the biggest ways that we can reduce this figure and ensure the safety of our youth, particularly our, our trans youth, would be to really just foster and champion the notion of inclusion and ensuring that our spaces are uh, inclusive uh, for youth who identify with this population. I think a a clear example would be, so I I think the figures are even higher for trans youth, especially trans uh, youth who are experiencing homelessness. And just one way that we've tried to foster a more inclusive environment in places where I work Uh, would be simply just not make assumptions, be very clear to understand how the how the client wishes to express themselves, honoring that uh, something so simple as, uh, you know, if they want to be referred to as they them, or she her or he him, it's not too much trouble to just start there. And ensuring that that they have the power to choose which programs are best for them based on that expression. So for example, at, I, I can't speak too deeply, but at Covenant House, if you identify as a male, you can have a space on the floor with the other males. If you are a female and you identify as a female, it's the exact same thing. It's a way that really respects their wishes and pushes back on the notion of exclusion, which is a huge determinant for uh, uh, mental health. I think as leaders in our fields, we need to work harder at making our spaces more inclusive and respectful of the wishes of of those we serve, in particular trans youth. And I think the current sector is not very good at that. I think we're way behind in policy and we're way behind in ensuring that our spaces can accommodate youth who identify with this population. Another way would be greater access to to hormone treatments, increasing access to to healthcare, so the the youth can make that choice. I see the harm that you know being labeled trans has had on my youth. There's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of pain and there's 
a lot of regret. So I, I think it's really important that as people working in this field, we also need to provide information and we need to provide the full scope of the consequences of their choices. And we need to do that in a way that is loving and respectful and inclusive. But it's it's not always easy because I don't think we're there yet. I don't think us as a society, we're completely ready to accept people from the trans community. And as much as we try to make our spaces inclusive and as much as we welcome them into gender-specific spaces, there's always this weird vibe that they don't quite belong, that they do, but they don't quite. And I think in the middle of that is the friction and in there is the bedrock where issues related to mental health grow and begin to bud and begin to infiltrate uh, other areas of the youth's lives. So this is not only a, a, a program specific objective, but it's also something that society needs to do better at. And um, unfortunately, it's, it's probably our biggest pitfall in, in society is that we still really cling to traditional conceptions of gender and what that looks like and, and what the expectations are. All I can say is I think we're on the right track. I think the youth are supported outwardly, but uh, inwardly there's always going to be that sense of not quite fully belonging. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure how we're going to address that in a way that is totally meaningful for the youth. And I'm, I'm just being honest. I really do appreciate your honesty. I'm quite touched that you are speaking out from your heart and really airing out your grievances because you're making a lot of good points. Like we can stand on our soapboxes all we want and talk about how we believe that everyone belongs and everyone can identify as, you know, how they feel comfortable identifying because that is who they are, point blank, no discussion. But then, you know, there's always going to be the implicit bias. There's always going to be like the people who raise their eyebrows. There's always going to be the people who don't quite get it and don't want to make the effort to get it. So I think you're making a really honest and important call out that I think a lot of people are afraid to make. And, and just to go to your point of implicit bias, like that is something that us as service providers need to be vigilant to address and to be mindful of. All our decisions to, to some extent are, gonna, are, are going to be impacted by subtle influences of ideas that we have been brought up with. I think a good start at the level of a service provider is really for some really high quality training. And I, I know at Covenant House, we take this very seriously. I know all the youth workers, supervisors, managers, et cetera, have to undergo hours of unconscious bias training. And while it's mostly aimed at addressing racial unconscious bias, there are some that there is, I would say, an honorable mention for uh, the trans community, but I, I think it, it needs to go a little deeper. And I think the training needs to uh, be a little more generous uh, with regards to that, that's for sure. You're doing a, certainly a service in speaking out and truly just being honest with what you're seeing, because at the end of the day, what you're doing here in speaking out in the way that you are, you are advocating for your youth who I think, you know, it's very clear you care so much about them. 
I can tell this is your world. This is something you're passionate about. You're doing, you're doing good is what I'm trying to say. So sometimes it's a downer. Sometimes it's a hard conversation, but it's a conversation we need to have. <laughs> Thanks, Maya. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. You're right. It, it is a conversation. It needs to be a discourse uh, with the broader community and, uh, and with uh, society as a whole. At the foundation of Canadian society, there, there is a set of values, colonial values, that need to be um, unearthed and dismantled. And having the discussion is the first way to getting at those roots and removing those weeds. Absolutely. I'm going to move on to my next question because it's going to get a little into how an LGBTQ2S plus identifying youth might end up experiencing homelessness. So how might someone who identifies as LGBTQ2S plus end up experiencing homelessness? And how might this differ from a youth who perhaps does not identify as LGBTQ2S plus? What kind of changes in those early days, I guess, what sort of different issues might an identifying youth face that specifically leads to them experiencing homelessness because of their identity? I think at the root of it is choice. I think LGBTQS plus youth who are experiencing homelessness, I think they're experiencing it because of who they are and not what they've done. It's heartbreaking to hear the stories of these youth when they come out to their parents or to their guardians and what should have been uh, a loving and a supportive response has ultimately been one of rejection. And that's the consistent theme we hear from this group. And these are, this is just based on my own experience from what I've seen and Youth who identify as straight, they're more times than not asked to leave the home because of choices they've made. And it's not so much based on their identity or based on things that are beyond their control. There are some youth who do not identify with this community who perhaps on the basis of mental illness or on the basis of addiction, other forces that are beyond their control that they've been asked to leave. But more times than not, it's usually because of uh, of their actions and to some degree how it's uh, had a direct impact on their living situation. Um, and LGBTQ2S plus youth can be the perfect son or daughter. They can be an exemplary student. They can be engaged in, in all forms of community engagement and service. They can, they can be the picturesque son or daughter, but still be asked to leave on the basis of a factor that is completely out of their control, not something that, that they've asked for, but like I said, on the basis of who they are. This lines up with some more statistics I found as well. According to Homeless Hub, the web-based research library and information center for homelessness curated by the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, which is the largest national institute devoted to homelessness in Canada, one out of every four teenagers, so 25% of all teenagers, are forced to leave their family home because they've come out. So I think what you've just spoken to about how, you know, these youth are experiencing homelessness because of who they are instead of what they've done. I think that's a really, you know, it's a very empirical way to speak to what is something we very much see reflected in statistics. And that's not an oversimplification. I think that 
that strikes to the core of what's happening uh, with this particular community. It is solely on the basis of identity and that identity, which unfortunately the parents do not resonate with and which ultimately results in a family breakdown. Before we get back to learning about the LGBTQ2S plus youth experience with Nick, I wanted to take a moment to touch base with you, the listener. If you're interested in joining the conversation, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube so we can hear your thoughts on today's episode and you can let us know what you want to see in the future. I would also like to offer a huge thank you to the Black Opportunity Fund for the Education and Health Grant and to the Robert Kerr Foundation for their generous donation to our programming. It's because of foundations like you that we are able to serve BIPOC youth in Peel. If you want to stay in the loop about what REST is doing to help our community shelter dignity and support youth experiencing homelessness, you can get to know us on LinkedIn or subscribe to the REST Center's newsletter for updates. And most importantly, if you are a youth in Peel experiencing or are at risk of experiencing homelessness, we are here to help. Give us a call at 905-863-1118 to get in touch. Now, back to the episode. So my question about this actually is, what do you believe are the contributing factors in a parent's choice to kick out their child after that child has come out regarding their gender identity or sexual orientation? This is a sensitive um, issue, and I really like how you put it on on the parents, right? Because it's not always because of the youth. I think we we overemphasize what they may or may not have done wrong. So so this is great. I, to answer your question, I, I would say, I would say the biggest motivating factor for the parents to make such a devastating choice, frankly, uh, would have something to do with with perhaps their own upbringing. You know, a, a, a lot of these families. The parents or guardians, they've they've grown up in a neoconservative, um, I don't want to say old way of thinking, but but certainly more traditional way of thinking household. And these views, uh, either directly or indirectly, have have become their own, I would say. And and this is not to frankly put down some of our more conservative religious listeners you know again it kind of goes back to identifying these these biases and these stereotypes deep within us and working to dismantle them you know and, and also a lot of these parents they they see their child as coming up as a moral failure and um and and the parents that they really struggle with this and they really internalize it and the mother or father, you know, they're, they're sitting at their bed and they're saying, what did I do wrong as a parent? Like, like where did, where could I have done better? And at this point it kind of becomes a matter of, it's not their failing, it's now my failings. And, you know, this of course really causes a lot of shame and really causes uh, feelings of strong guilt and sometimes they're just so unbearable that removing the youth or asking the youth to leave um, and shutting them out is actually their way of coping with the situation. And um, it ties old with the old saying, out of sight, out of mind, because some of these feelings of, of failure are um, are really, really soul crushing and, um, and are, are a constant source of torment for these parents. I would say that it, it's, it certainly has to do with with their own values and and what they grew up believing in for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then following up to that, how do we as a society thus 
educate current and future parents to be more supportive of their kids' choices and identities. Because this, of course, comes back to, you know, we live in a society, everything is changing every day. And especially in the last 25 years, and I I think that's probably not generous enough, I think even more than that, we've experienced such immense social change, or if not social change, then social awareness. So how can we educate these parents to be more supportive or to be more accepting of differences? Mm. You know, as, as a spiritual person, who somebody who deeply believes in, um, you know, the concept of, of God, I, I'm, I'm just going to say, frankly, that all children, regardless of race, ability, gender, or sexual orientation, all of them are a blessing from the Lord. And, you know, if that offends you, um, then let's just change the word Lord to creator. You know, children are a blessing. And we have a duty to love and care for these children, no matter what, full stop. And I, I think if adults and guardians take on a more principled approach to raising their children, which includes unconditional love and support, I think that's a very good starting point. And, you know, the, the studies show that, that one, of the, one of the major social determinants for health and prosperity for a youth is the presence of a caring, responsible, and reliable support network of adults. Um, you know what, even if it's just one, just having that one loving and supportive adult can quite literally be the thing that separates the youth from a life of despair and pain and negative outcomes to one that is full of life, love, and uh, fulfillment and, and joy, frankly. It's, um, it's absolutely essential that, that we put aside what we believe to be right and wrong regarding the LGBTQS community and, uh, and really anchoring ourselves in uh, the principle of, of unconditional love and support. And that's not an oversimplification. It's something that we as people can sometimes go with the, the forces and the waves of the cultural trends of mindsets that are fueled by emotion and, and and not obligation, duty, and principle. So like I said, I think that's a really good starting point. Very beautifully put. Thank you. I especially appreciate your personal perspective on the religious aspect as well, because just like in my experience with friends of mine who are also religious, they've like, I've heard them talk about what you've already were discussing, you know, like the more rigid aspects of some or some religions regarding homosexuality, LGBTQ2S issues, stuff like that. So it, it's, I don't want to say refreshing, but it's really nice to hear a spiritual person approach this with the fact that all of those things don't really matter because every child is a blessing. Every child is, is a gift. Yeah, no, and 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 I was just gonna say, like, just to touch on like what our original purpose is, we are, we are in a sense, if we go back to the Old Testament, which is so taboo for this topic, but if we start from the beginning, the whole purpose of us being here is to is to care, provide, and steward for God's creation, God's good creation, and what that implies is a sense of duty and obligation that transcends things like LGBTQS issues. And that's not to minimize it. That's to actually, in a way, celebrate it through love and through respect and, and in truth. 
there's a ton of horrible misunderstandings, but ultimately God loves this community and, and God's plans for them is, is obviously one of redemption and hope and salvation. Um, you know, it's, there is, God is clearly, uh, as scripture teaches against all forms of oppression, you know, and, and we've done a good job, uh, in terms of the liberation theology aspect of spirituality, especially with regards to the racialized community. But I I think that same theme can be applied to the almost the identity crisis that's currently plaguing the LGBTQS society. And, And it fundamentally rests on God's goodness and God's love and care for his creation and us as responsible adults who are willing to take up the call to partner with him in providing the best care and support possible to these youth. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's rudiment. It's fundamentally a principled approach. Absolutely. If I may also ask, how do we educate parents and adults in general on the proper training needed for when a child has thoughts of suicide? Yeah. So, so just a disclaimer, I'm, I'm not a, a medical professional. I will answer based on my own training. And the first thing we, we need to differentiate is suicidal ideation and uh, a child who is clearly in crisis and who uh, has a plan in place. So the first thing is to determine which one it is. Both are serious, both require immediate medical attention. But in terms of one where the youth is seriously ready to take that step, it's important that, that a plan is developed, that we talk about this issue, that it's not something that is shunned. If a child has a thought of suicide, this is a medical crisis. And it's something that does require professional intervention Uh, to any parents whose child is struggling with these thoughts. uh, I would encourage them to develop a safety plan, to talk about what it is we should do when these thoughts arise and what do we do in the event that an attempt has actually been made. It's extremely important to seek professional help to develop a robust network of supports to provide treatment to the youth. It's important to to have open and frank discussions about it. I feel like when you talk about something in the open, it really does um, shed light on it. And uh, eventually with enough light, uh, that darkness is just going to completely dissipate. So having open and frank conversations, engaging in that dialogue in ways that are strength-based in ways that are um, relationship building, in ways that are compassionate and empathetic. For parents who are in the middle of this, it's really hard as well on the parent. And I would just tell the parent that to not, to not so much look at what they've done wrong and, and what might have led to this, but, but how can we make it right moving forward? Developing a safety plan, seeking medical attention, um, being sure that 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 you're present at every step of the process of treatment um, and, uh, and, and really um, standing by your child. That might seem common sense, but you'd be surprised how many parents would just you know, drop off the child at a therapist or just drop them off um, at the hospital. It's so important that, that they stay by their side and, um, and, uh, and, 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 and be intentional in making them feel valued making them feel um, loved and, uh, 
and um, making them feel worthy ultimately. I think that's such an important point to consider. And if I can speak a little empirically to this, you were talking about, you know, if we talk about suicide enough and we talk about the fact that we feel this way sometimes and that it's not scary if we can ask for help, the fact that even acknowledging it is okay, it comes back to the idea of stigmatization, but rather destigmatizing in the same way that we need to destigmatize LGBTQ2S plus identities. We need to destigmatize things like suicide because all of these things are normal. All of these things we should be here to help each other with. And it, it's all coming together. It all comes full circle. And I think to end what has been honestly such an insightful conversation, such a wonderful, passionate conversation that I'm so happy to have been a part of, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all of my guests. And that is... Where do you want this discussion to go? What should I and our listeners tackle first? Spark that dialogue in as many areas as you can, frankly, you know, in the classroom, uh, with, your, with your community leaders, with your political leaders, with your um, uh, parents in the family home, you know, if, if, if you're able to but, to, but to really open up and, and not shy away from who you are. What I always tell my youth is that there are more people who are for you than against you. And at times it's going to be uncomfortable, but you really have to push out of that comfort zone and, 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 and be intentional and in, in having this engagement, this level of engagement, having these discussions, opening up about it, not shying away from who you are, but finding those people coming alongside those individuals who can frankly celebrate you and and who can uh, uphold your identity we need to have more discussions about this we need to educate and we need to raise awareness we need to have roundtable discussions both in settings like this but even at our own kitchen tables um, the stigma and the discrimination is a very real thing and the way that we combat this is by coming together under one banner under one agenda, under one end, and and that is to bring equality and justice to this community. The exclusion has to stop. The isolation needs to end. And the negative judgments that are causing endless barriers for the LGBTQS society, they need to come down. And it all comes down to the choice. Am I going to Am I just going to be a complacent member of the status quo or am I going to come alongside this community and, and find ways to disrupt the system, to disrupt um, some of the negative mindsets? Establishing allies, both at the political and at the grassroots level, getting out there and uh, letting your voice be heard. Sharing your stories is so powerful and sharing them in ways that can really grab people's attention. You know, I've seen the most rigid, hardcore, conservative mindsets be melted just by hearing the stories of these youth and being open on the other end. I think it's time that, that we really close the door to the past and start looking towards a more inclusive and equal future for these youth, for sure. Beautiful words to end on. Thank you, Nick, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maya, for having me. It's it's always a pleasure, and um, and thank you for 
taking the time to uh, to bring up such an important topic in this very important month. Thank you. Living as a youth member of the LGBTQ2S plus community in this country still has a long way to go in terms of equality, equity, and feelings of acceptance and belonging, but we can all do something to help. Let's work together to foster inclusive environments with no assumptions about gender and sexual identities. Let's make people feel included by using their preferred pronouns, giving them the power and autonomy to choose the programs and services that best work for them in their identity, and push back on exclusionary practices in every facet of life. Let's educate each other and provide the full scope of the issue to youth and adults alike, and let's approach each other with love and acceptance, because like Nick said, the exclusion needs to stop and the isolation has to end. That wraps up this episode of Homelessness and Hiding, Our Youth Between the Cracks. If you want to follow up with some additional resources about LGBTQ2S plus youth, check out the links in the description. If you are interested in supporting a cause tackling youth homelessness, I invite you to visit our website, restcenters.org. That's R-E-S-T-C-E-N-T-R-E-S dot org to learn more about our mission and how you can support the cause. If you found solace here, learned something new, or think we have something of value to offer, you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Maya Moniz, signing off. This podcast has been brought to you by The Rest Centers. Through the special dedication of our coordinator, Maya Moniz, our assistant researcher, Kelsey McLaughlin, our director of youth engagement, Romaine Redman, and Rest's executive director and founder, Dag McCoy. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are exclusively those of the hosts and guests involved and have no affiliation with the Restoration Empowerment for Social Transition Center or with the Covenant House in Toronto.